Hey everyone, welcome to Heart for Life, a podcast for everything Web3. I am Kasra, your host. Today I had a pleasure of talking to Charlie. Charlie is an entrepreneur, he's also a Web3 lawyer. And in this episode, there was a lot of interesting examples that me and Charlie uh, walked through. There was a lot of useful information for new and existing Web3 founders when it comes to how to think about the legal aspects of Web3. So Charlie has had different clients from different NFT projects, different Web3 projects. So there's a lot of interesting examples that he uses that I definitely recommend you to tune into this episode and hear about all of them. We also um, pinpoint some of the legal aspects that every Web3 founder needs to think about from the terms of service, from how you should uh, think about uh, fundraising, how to incorporate your company. So all these nuances when it comes to Web3 regulation and legal aspect are really important to think about and have some sort of a plan as a Web3 founder. So definitely recommend checking this episode out. But before we continue, a few words from our sponsors. Building applications on blockchain is complicated and expensive today. And a lot of builders always face this question. Should I go and build this thing in-house and I need to maintain it? It's going to be costly. It's going to be hard. And my main focus is on building my own application, not to maintain the infrastructure. Or should I go and use an unreliable or too centralized solution out there, which doesn't allow me to scale in the right way? Flare.dev comes in and tries to solve these core problems for integrating blockchain into your application. The core of what Flare does is a smart contract framework that is scalable. So you can deploy any smart contract on Flare, fully decentralized, and you can upgrade it in a decentralized way as your project progresses. So that gives you ultimate flexibility and scalability. Also for a lot of protocols or projects, there is a flow of reading indexing or streaming data from blockchain, whether it is token data, transaction data, NFT data, or your custom smart contracts events, you want to be able to process that data in a flexible way, maybe make some external API calls or process that data in a unique way and react on that index data in a certain method. For example, relaying a transaction on blockchain or storing that data in your MySQL, MongoDB, or AWS. Or for example, sending a message to your Discord, Telegram. Basically that flow of reading the data or an event, processing it and triggering an action, Flare gives you the core tools you need for indexing and relaying and storing that data in the most scalable, easy to use and decentralized way. So. If you want to learn more about Flare, definitely make sure to check their website, which is flare.dev. That is F-L-A-I-R.dev. Charles, welcome to the podcast. How's it going, man? It's going well. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. Actually, I think this is the first time we have um, someone with your background, you know, entrepreneur, but also have uh, uh, a lot of experience with the legal aspects of Web3, which is not the easiest thing to <laughs> kind of navigate, but maybe before we start diving deep into those aspects, can you tell me about your background and what made you interested in jumping ship into crypto and Web3? 
So I was first a startup founder, actually, before I became a lawyer. And that's why I'm a legal founder now. I, I became a lawyer because I realized there's a real need and there's a gap between what you have as a founder and especially working in emerging tech and all the legal barriers to entry. So I sold a, a data algorithm for consumer complaints called Complaint Box um, and a wearable ring company called My Ring Technologies in my early 20s. I worked um, through college and I had a couple of friends and people we hired uh, in order to make those companies. But especially the second company, MyRank, I realized that when I raised a couple million dollars, my lawyer turned on me and said, you know, Charles, up until this point, it's been great. But and this person was my mentor. He wanted to be able to take control of the company and we would do things his way. And, you know, I ended up firing him and I had to look around and say, OK, who's a good lawyer who understands? a wearable ring with a camera inside of it and all of the different tech aspects that go into this it had never been done before. And that's when I realized that if I wanted to be able to help other people working in emerging tech, I really wanted to become a lawyer myself because there are some lawyers who understand, but, but how many lawyers really understand the founder's journey and, and how it takes sometimes if you're sitting in a boardroom, uh, when I was trying to sell my company, I had to sit in a boardroom for over an hour and a half waiting for my lawyer to draft an NDA and just a simple confidentiality agreement. But because the lawyer didn't understand what was at stake, they were trying to make everything perfect when it mattered more for them to just sign it so I could share the invention. And there are things like that, that I think there's such a disconnect between what goes on in the legal world, trying to protect yourself and also the business decisions that you make as a founder and an emerging tech. So that's why I was ultimately drawn to Web3. Because in my view, almost every Web3 project needs legal counsel in some capacity. You may not need a huge amount of it. You may just need someone to look over your terms of service or make sure um, all the public information is, is accurate and is okay. You don't need to technically pay them a lot of money, but that's not always how the legal structure works. So I'm looking to disrupt it in that way and, and really help different projects. Yeah, I can relate to this so much because especially as a first time founder that you enter a space that things are not figured out, there's a lot of confusion. And one of the things I had in mind before actually you mentioned this was, is this kind of only limited to the world of crypto and Web3? Because, you know, there's the question of are they securities and terms of service is not clear. And as you mentioned, like NDS, there's all these aspects, but Probably that's also the case for a lot of other emerging techs, you know, because things are not figured out yet. But do you think maybe this is kind of supercharged for crypto much more because there's also this aspect of securities or those things? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I've counseled a lot of different companies too with um, Y Combinator. I've invested in some Y Combinator startups and lately I've also counseled some a little beyond the scope of Web3, but there are a lot of AI and Web3 startups going on right now in the new YC badge. But what, to your point, it's absolutely right. So with Web3 specifically, we have the question about whether or not something's a security. We have Gary Gensler of the SEC within the United States basically saying everything's a security besides Bitcoin because you all have labs or foundations or companies. And I, you know, I maintain that that's not necessarily true. We haven't really figured it all out yet. But at the same time that there are a lot of questions, you could release an NFT project and we see by the Dapper Labs Top Shot case that the judge is already being very gung-ho and saying, well, I could see NFTs as securities as well. 
We've never heard that before. We thought maybe it was just the tokens. Now we're hearing it's NFTs too. So what I think about Web3 is when you're doing an emerging tech company, and even if it's a new technology, there are usually a certain step, certain steps and guidelines that you take. You know you protect the IP. You know what your terms might look like from other companies before you. You're able to kind of go, we live in a great internet age. We could just really Google and, hey, uh, or even YC could tell you, or even like other like WSGR. There are plenty of free resources that you could create documents and you could copy other people's, you know, contracts. But with Web3, it's different because we don't have a lot of precedent. So I think that because we don't have like clear cut regulations and legislations yet, we also don't have so many companies that like truly succeeded beyond the first couple of years. We don't really know what we're doing. And I think that's why you need a lawyer the most. You're going to need a lawyer in all emerging tech areas, but in this one specifically, because the laws haven't really been created, you don't really know what to do. You can't really copy anyone just yet. You might copy a Celsius. You might copy even a Coinbase, but who knows in the next two years, we saw Gemini had issues. We saw obviously tornado cash and all these companies that you think are doing well, they're doing so well, they may not. And, and that's why you need a lawyer to kind of advise and say, how do we do the terms of service? What's the best way to structure a roadmap? And we're owning digital assets online for the first time ever decentralized. And this is a big deal that we don't really think about. And I think that there ought to be new laws for Web3 accordingly. And they're just taking a while to create, you know? Absolutely. As you mentioned also, it kind of depends on um, maybe the type of the product that you're also building. So for example, if you are actually going to be touching people's money and you are, it, maybe it's just much safer to have the right, let's say, legal advice from the beginning to make sure that you're building in the right phase. But I'm going to ask this question, especially because I'm, it's a really good combination that you have. You're a kind of an entrepreneur, but also the kind of the lawyer and legal aspect. And it's really hard to kind of combine these two together, by the way. Um, you can relate to this so much that the startup founder, maybe people that are listening to this podcast, that there are so many areas that you need to focus on. Product market fit, you know, talking to customers, building something. And there's this kind of thing of the legal aspect that is put on your shoulder as well. Um, kind of excluding the fact that, okay, what exactly are you building in the world of Web3? What are the most important things in the legal area that a early stage startup founder pre-product market fit uh, should, should think about it and maybe ask advice from a, from a lawyer? So, you know, great question because it's absolutely true and appreciate you know game recognized game it's actually extremely difficult to be an entrepreneur and a lawyer and you know before becoming a lawyer i thought how hard could it be for these lawyers who are helping these entrepreneurs and tech like how hard could it be why are they taking so many weeks or or time in order to get back to you and in order to create something and give you contracts that seem like so easy to do but, you know, more that I've worked in the field, I realize that there's so many nuances and questions that come up and it's a little bit harder to do. But if you're really I'm thinking about this in the way that even I help my friends, I help founders. I have like a discount rate, especially I give friends and family. People will come to me and say, for instance, the most recent project I did was Salvador Dali and Halsman Archive with an AI artwork drop in Paris. So this was on Super Chiefs and it was on NFT uh, Paris Factory. 
And one of my very good friends, um, Oliver Holzman, uh, the grandson of Philippe Holzman, a world-recognized photographer, one of the top photographers of all time, he was known for his work, uh, creative work, but now Oliver took it with Salvador Dali photos and took it to the next level where we used AI generative art. Hasn't really been done before. It was a combination of the two worlds. And because he's a friend, he said, okay, Charles, like, hey man, like, what's the cheapest you could charge me? And also like, what could you do here? Like, what do I need bare minimum? And I'm getting messages also from another friend of mine. I'd say no matter what you do, if you're just doing like an NFT, you need a good terms of service, no matter what, even if you're doing just a PFP project for fun. And we realize this because we see from Celsius and we see a few other cases, there was a holding by the court that said, um, four and a half, oh, nearly four and a half billion dollars was actually within the custody of the startup of the web three company because the terms of service said that they own the money. This is powerful because all the people who are holding all the coins said that we own the coins, but because the terms of service had the web three company on it, they could. That basically means that you could decide these terms of service could be the difference between billions of dollars. And even if you're just making a couple hundred dollars, even if you're giving it away for free on like a manifold project, you still need to understand that you can't have people sue you if there's a problem. You also have to decide like how much IP are you really giving away? They're just so many questions that if you talk to a lawyer for not a lot of money, you're able to guide and make a real decision about how your Web3 project is going to go. And I've spoken about this a lot. I've spoken around the country, especially last year. And I, I kind of preach that terms of service are so important for Web3 projects. It's something new. And even though we download a lot of apps and then we have these like massive terms, like if you're going to go on your iPhone and you're like, okay, I want to just download a random app you're not going to read all your terms of service. And even my internet professor in law school said he doesn't read it and he's the one who should read it um, because you're going to want the app no matter what. I think the users have a lot more to gain and lose in Web3 because it is their data, it is their ownership, and it is something that shouldn't be taken lightly and also from the company. So no matter what, I work with companies to craft their narrative from the roadmap on. Everything has to be consistent, including terms of service, the contracts too should all have web three components to it. If you don't disclaim that, for instance, there are gas fees or there are fluctuations in the market that you might get hacked. There've been so many problems that I've seen with co-founders where they get hacked quite often. You'd be surprised. And what do you do if you get hacked and you don't have any provisions talking about it? Like who gets what and where does the money get allocated? It, it's a mess sometimes, to be honest. And because I'm a lawyer and because I step in right away, I've counseled over 60 projects, six zero in Web3, which is more than nearly any attorney in the space and more than almost any attorney in the world from what I'm concerned or what I know so far. I always look for attorneys who counsel more. And there are some law firms who do Web3, but nobody's like specifically an attorney doing this many. And the reason why is because my thesis and theory is instead of talking about, instead of like, just writing about it and going to conferences. I published in Columbia Law Journal. I've published in top securities law journals already. I want to help the founders. I want to learn through doing. And I think Web3 was the perfect outlet to do that because the more companies I counsel, the more I could advise companies about what they should do. This is why I'm so strong on terms of service. This is why I'm so strong on like certain provisions. Incorporation as well is such a big one. If you're releasing any sort of token whatsoever, 
or even NFTs. I'm one of the few attorneys who has a structure that you can navigate and operate within the United States where the theory is it's not going to be a security. I've had about 14 companies, board of advisors and directors vote in my structure. Came up last year, actually, at East Denver. Uh, we were drinking beers in the VIP room. We had $10 million we had to allocate for Traxadow, which is one of the largest logistics DAOs. They were anticipating some funding. They had some IP. They said, Charles, let's grab beers. Let's sit down and let's really problem solve how to do it. And I came up with a three-pronged corporate structure that I still implement to this day. Um, I'm working with Camelot. Uh, they're an Arbitrum company. When I first started counseling them, they were worth about three and a half million. They're worth over 200 million to date right now as we speak. And I think one of the reasons too is because we have to be very careful about the structuring. We have to have people feel safe about it. And we have to make sure that we're doing a good job for all these Web3 projects unanimously across the board, no matter where they are. Yeah, I think you nailed it in the head when kind of, because that's kind of my experience as well, that, I mean, if you're in the hobby mode, building mode, then go crazy, you know, just go build. Uh, but as soon as there is, let's say, some real traction, I can totally relate to the fact that, you know, you need to have a good terms of service because you need to define what you're responsible for, what are the users are getting. It's just a must have. So, um, and it's, it's not going to be really costly in terms of if you think about it, because in a kind of related to your project, there are certain aspects which you can have a consultation with a lawyer. I don't think the copy paste actually is going to really work in that way because every business is going to be different in terms of how they capture value, deliver value. So that kind of customized aspect of it would be um, super helpful uh, in, in that sense. And also the kind of corporate structuring, I would say maybe that's the next phase if you want to kind of, you know, um, incorporate the company, then also there comes a lot of nuances, you know, where it is, how structured, where's the place that is issuing the token and all of those things. Um, I, I know it, it can look a bit scary from the outside when people actually don't know about these things, but um, I think as soon as you become a bit serious in terms of building, you can also slowly put these things into place to make sure that you have the right footing. Um, and from my experience, for example, these kind of terms of service and the corporate structuring, um, it was around 10K or 15K in terms of the total cost. Um, so that was kind of re really, let's say, reasonable uh, in the grand scheme of things, all the other expenses you have to make sure that you're totally compliant. Um, I've done even cheaper too. You know, I don't get people too excited or ideas, but it really depends on the structuring of what you're doing. But because I've done it so many times, like I've counseled companies as low as 5K to get certain projects done or as high as 35, um, really depends on what we're doing. I, my solution is really more of like a semi quote low cost. Obviously, everyone's building, it's a bear market, and some people have more money than others. But I want to at least figure out in triage and say like, okay, this is your project. What can we do with the allocated budget? There's a project right now called Dream Tank and they're helping young entrepreneurs. Uh, there's setting up a spot in Baja, California. And the idea is basically that if you, you could invest in younger entrepreneurs through a token, which is like an ETF of like 12 different companies within an incubator and you're able to like fund their dreams and I've structured in a way that you're able to access the liquidity quicker. You're still able to trade and sell the token, even though the companies may not have succeeded yet. And I think that that's an important point. But they came to me and said, Charles, we're a nonprofit. We don't have a huge budget. 
So we really like talked about what their budget was. And within the confines of the budget, we were still able to create U.S. operations, integrate Mexican token issuances and still have good terms of service. So that was like a pretty good project, which proved that we really just want to get as many Web3 people on board to kind of, you know, not only save them money, but I think that this will make you at least three times as much in the long run. With the right corporate structure, your investors feel better. People who are buying the tokens feel better. People understand what's going on. And I've had companies triple their valuation because they look at the structure and say, wow, this is actually good work. Or sometimes I'm hired to literally sit on meetings or on boards and talk to people. Like LostCity.com just won one of the top metaverse awards. It's going to be awarded in Miami at the end of the month. And it's I'm on the board and I literally talk about their structuring to other people as well. And I think that that aspect, like what you're mentioning too, you know, you, you're building, you're starting out, but also just like the investment, I'm trying to make it worth it. I was a founder myself and I always found legal fees to suck and to be a drain. I would try to avoid them as much as I could, as much as anyone else. But I realized for Web3 especially, like even if you pay just a little bit, it could go a really long way, honestly. Yeah, you, you have the right footing basically. And I can also totally relate to the fact that, again, if you're doing something a bit serious, talk to some vendors, talk to even other investors, having some of these bases is kind of a must have because it shows that you have done your homework. You're not just, you know, some kid that is playing around. Just there, there's a bit of a structure, let's say. And that's how the world works. You need to kind of establish trust with other people, make sure that, you know, if something happens, which things happen all the time, there's a structure for who's responsible, what's going to happen. So that's, that's, that's super important. Definitely. And, and, you know, people should listen to your podcast, obviously, and other resources, because the truth is that there's a lot of data out there, but people don't always know the best thing to do. You'd be very surprised. We have some really big companies approaching me recently. One's doing, they're selling mineral rights um, through an asset back, back token. Um, this project could be worth billions of dollars pretty soon, and they're raising a huge amount of money. But they don't really understand the concept of royalties well in Web3 and blockchain. And, and these are like simple concepts that you and I might know, but we realize that there are so many value adds that you could create by having experience with companies, like telling them like one of the bigger companies or projects I'm working with, uh, royalties.com, uh, they're creating in very stealth mode right now, but we're going to release soon. Uh, just the idea of, you know, for instance, Ford Motor Companies sells cars. And every time Ford Motor Company sells a car, they make money. But then every time there's a resale of that car, Ford doesn't get any money. The owner gets money. Do you know what I mean? So if we're able to track the title or the deed and go to Ford Motor Companies and say, hey, every time you sell, every time there's a resale of a car, there's a resale of a car maybe five or six times, you'll get a small percentage of that. Right now, you're losing all this money because you're not using the blockchain. Like we learned this in the art world. Technically, when you resell art, you're supposed to give royalties often to the artist. Europe does a you know a better job a little bit. US doesn't do that well. California is a little confused, but it's still even in Europe, it's very hard to track when you actually sold it. A lot of art dealers and agents don't actually write down or don't share the profits, uh, even though there's a change of hands. With the blockchain, we'll know when there's a change of hands. And I think those are the type of things that you come and bring as a lawyer or as a founder and a consultant and say, here, here are ways that you can make money that you may not have even thought of, 
look, I have, I know what works. I've seen what works. I've seen money come in and out. I'm literally the lawyer and counselor of the companies. I could tell you what projects are succeeding and which ones aren't. I see a lot of trends that a lot of people don't see behind the hood. A lot of it's smoke and mirrors over, you know, the internet or PR or marketing, but I, I'm the one with the real conversations and saying, what's your budget? How much money do you have? Um, what are you trying to do? How do we structure it? How do we help you? And most of my projects have so far been successful, fortunately, at least in terms of their goals. But, you know, seeing different projects and being like, wow, that's a really innovative approach of what you're doing right now. And you're making tons of money doing it. Like, it's, it's really interesting to then go to new projects and say, I see what you're doing and I know how to make it even better. I think that goes such a long way in Web3 because it's still such a new field we're all building. And, and at the end of the day, I think Web3 is about collaborating, not competing. I think that being a lawyer and having the ecosystem of investors, I'm throwing an investor dinner on March 8th at a private club in New York. I have different resources of developers. I just set up a French company with a great developer in Buenos Aires and one in, in New York City as well. I think just like knowing and having the right context is invaluable in Web3 because we have to work together. We're all building in some capacity. We all need something from someone. So I think being more of a connector than even being a competitor has really helped the companies that are thriving, if you think about it. I mean, I really appreciate you sharing these examples because uh, like a lot of them are nuanced. A lot of them are, yeah. I mean, if, if you kind of think about it, as you mentioned, there's a lot of noise in the PR, but what are the exact conversation, a lot the right things that are happening behind the scenes? So I, I, can, I can definitely see that. Um, maybe a question for you in terms of, you know, what is different between the, the legal work that is needed in the traditional sense and also in the web three, uh, how much of the work that you do is about, for example, knowing the rules and laws, which there's a lot of gray areas, for example, or knowing like different things and how, how much of the work is about doing a creative work or be able to kind of connect things in a creative way. Uh, would love to kind of explore this a bit. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it really depends client to client. And it was a great thing that you had just mentioned too, because the reason I give a lot of specific examples, A, because I've done a lot of projects, but B, I've spoken at a Neo Protocol event pretty recently. And, and somebody in the audience basically asked and they said, okay, like, Charles, we get it. It's important to get an attorney, like even if it's just like an initial consult or kind of see where we're going. But like, how do we know what attorneys get? Like there's so many good law firms out there. So many people went to like Yale and Harvard and Stanford and, and all these places. And a lot of them counsel the biggest banks. So how do we know if they're a good lawyer for Web3 or not? And I said that the best way to tell is to think of specific examples. Ask your lawyer, what have you done? What Web3 related projects have you done? And what specifically have you done in terms of the law to gear it towards Web3? So not just like, um, I know some very big law firms and I'm, I'm friends with people who run the groups. So I don't want to mention names, but they basically told me like, they're like, Charles, we're doing a lot of Web3 companies and projects and we're saying we're making DAOs, but we're really just making a Delaware Corp and it's kind of business as usual. We're not making many changes to accommodate the new Web3 landscape because we don't know a lot of the laws or regulations just yet. So we'd rather be safe and not really take much of a risk and just counsel the companies as we did. 
But if you're a founder and a, if you're a company, even the top companies, um, one of the theories I have too is that, and, and this is shared among some of my colleagues, that a lot of the companies in Web3 will fail, which we know, but some, you know, an overwhelming majority might fail because of their poor legal structuring. Even FTX had an issue with extradition and ultimately came into the US. I'm not saying I'd help in FTX. What I'm saying is, there are so many people and, and projects that had they had the expertise of what to do legally in Web3 and specific use cases and, and customization, I think the projects would be so much better off. So for me, it's kind of twofold where, so I, you know, it was hard to jump into this field right away. I practiced law for over seven years. I've sold two startup companies and I've had a lot of work experience before I went into this area. I've done sports and entertainment law. I've, I've litigated in court. I've worked for some great reputable firms in New York City. And I think from there, it was in 2017, I published in Columbia Law Journal about the user experience where I said, uh, you know, the look and feel of a website, a UI UX, isn't really protected under traditional IP law in the US. Yeah, you have some aspects you could do like a trademark of like a logo, or you could copyright certain words, or you could design patent. But you know, when you go on like Uber, or you go on Tinder, and you swipe and you go on all these different websites, like even the Google search bar, there's something to it, this je ne sais quoi, say, this look and feel that the US laws don't protect. So I, I came up with a solution called trade dress, and, and a trade dress exception within UX, and not to delve too deep into it. But essentially, uh, the Supreme Court uh, the United States held that two Mexican restaurants that even though they didn't have the same logo, even though they didn't have the exact same setup, if you were to go into this two pesos restaurant and this other Mexican restaurant, you'd feel like you're in the same place. So, so even though you weren't directly copying, the look and feel was kind of knocked off. And because of this, the Supreme Court said, yeah, it's not trademark infringement. It's actually trade dress the look and feel of trade dress can't be infringed upon by another person. So I argue this ought to apply to the internet, not, not physical spaces like Walmart or two pesos, but also what about a metaverse in the future? And I was thinking 2017 when metaverse looked even worse than it still does uh, today, uh, doing some film noir projects, have some great metaverses, but I don't know if we're all there just yet technologically, um, or at least in terms of like just the overall layout, layout and feel. But I also explained that if you have a certain website, billions of dollars or trillions a year now are poured into UI UX, like there are UI UX designers and there are people who spend so much money that just aren't protected. You could go on a website, for instance, like Snapchat and Instagram, like knock off each other's stories or TikTok copies, you know, of Facebook. And, and these are allowed to happen because there's no protections there. If, if we all look at our phones, we see updates. Like, wow, I know Meadow is Instagram now, but didn't know is. And I know that Snapchat's a different company, but how come they still all have those circles when you click on your stories? Like, how are you allowed to do that? And because of this, Columbia Law Journal, one of the top law journals in the entire country, said, okay, Charles, like, we actually love your article. I published in that journal. And this was early in my career. And I realized that even though a law doesn't exist yet, doesn't mean that you can't get kind of rewarded or acknowledged by top universities and top law professors and, and top legal scholars for your work. So I, I translated that to Web3. I also published in a big securities law journal where 
I talked about congressional insider trading and how what Nancy Pelosi did and, and kind of trading with inside info is essentially legal. Like there's not really much to stop them besides the stock act, which finds them a couple hundred bucks. And my, my article was really to say, here's how to stop them. You know, like first half, here's why it's semi-legal. Like, let me explain all the securities laws. And second half, here's exactly what we do to stop it. Of course, Congress didn't ultimately stop it. And now we have almost all congressional insiders trading, um, which wasn't the intent, obviously. And I can't really take full responsibility for all of Congress trading, but I did acknowledge it and people did cite my article. And I realized from there too, which is why I also published you know, very intentionally Web3, I have a lot of legal theories that work. I've worked at Omnicom, which is one of the largest ad agencies in the world. It's the third largest. And I worked as legal counsel there. And there's something called sequential liability within the ad space in the US. And I apply that to Web3. I apply the different theories about securities law, about how to circumvent the Howey test through my expertise of writing about securities laws. I apply so many different legal elements and theories to my clients' work that you have about five layers of protections. Sure, they're all theories at the end of the day because we don't have true regulation and law, but all of them comply with the recent cases. So people that I work with feel very comfortable and that's why I have bigger projects too. Um, even the Recording Academy I've, I've consulted with and, and Tupac's estate and all these other companies because they sometimes if they're spending a lot of money, they consult with Charles, they consult with Slam Legal because they know that I've done a lot of diff different things. And if they're going to pour, let's say, a million dollars into a metaverse, they need some sort of legal opinion to feel a little bit better. We don't know all the laws yet, but we could do our best to at least protect and our best to utilize the theories that we have in order to protect ourselves. And looking at certain cases like library, which happened and and others, you know, not a lot of lawyers are arguing very well and not a lot of companies are protecting themselves well. And the Ryder Reps Yuga Labs lawsuit, I was intimately tied with one of the lawyers there and actually helped consult the case where I said, force the issue about who owns what um, in terms of IP and the catalog. Um, and, and, you know, not to transgress or not to talk too long on the subject. I'm obviously pretty passionate about it, but I also feel like there's just so many things that you can do creatively or not um, within this new area of law. So I'm going to do the boring stuff too for you. And I, I've hired a law firm of 20 people that, I, that I'm able to work with and do the general stuff. If you need an employee handbook, if you need just general things that are done in corporation that doesn't need any creative or strategic structures, we don't need to charge a law for that because this has been done all the time. Uh, the real value, I think, especially for my services, is the creative aspect. I'm going to get you from, you know, full scale, head to toe, how we're going to protect you and explain if we're going to do something that we typically do or if there's something bespoke that we need to do to put you at the best advantage for your company to succeed. I think the, the thing I really liked about what you mentioned, I mean, there are some things that are proven, let's say, and they're kind of the boring stuff, the logical stuff that, you know, has been there. But the two examples you pointed out it kind of reminded me that that happens in the traditional world and there's still not a good solution for it because maybe not enough people are thinking about it or talking about it. And even if it's in the theory phase, I mean, insider trading or there's a lot of work, for example, you know, 
maybe Snapchat team or whoever is coming up with the concept, for example, the short video, it's not that feature. There's a lot of thought process and work that goes into it, and then it comes as a feature. And if another company can just come and take all that work and just polish it a bit, and th that doesn't seem fair to me. And probably kind of the Web3 is going to be filled with kind of these nuances and these aspects that's it's not going to protect people in the right way. So I love that you're thinking about these things in the, on, on a daily basis. And yeah, it's, it's super, super important. Well, also the clients come to me and make me think about it, which is great. I had a client come to me and said, hey, we're making furniture in the metaverse, very high-end furniture. And, and one of them actually looks like Chanel furniture. Could we do that or not? And, and there are things that I would never think about. And I'm like, how close does it look? Are we able to file certain marks on this aspect? Or um, like, honestly, you name it. Um, hey, we're trying to create our own tokens. Are we allowed to do that? How do we do that? Um, I, I have so many interesting projects, especially with different artists um, and, and getting into AI and, and all these other aspects. It's so true because when you're a founder, you're not going to think about all these things. I didn't think about all these things, which is why it surprises me a lot. I've spoken to ex-SEC lawyers. I've spoken to top lawyers at the governments. And I get on these calls and I always think the lawyers are going to know more than me. They've had a lot more experience. And, you know, you're kind of trained as a lawyer, even as a founder, like especially going through the educational system. There's always somebody who knows more. But I am an expert in the field. And oftentimes people don't know whether or not to choose like a BNB chain or or another aspect or go on avalanche and and these these top lawyers have no idea and it's kind of like you need to be in the space you need to hang around a while and you need to understand all these technical questions even as a lawyer because you're going to advise and you're going to tell them what are your goals here and we're going to help you accomplish them that way also because there are certain things like we're talking about more esoterically what's going to happen if someone copies you do you want there to be repercussion I was one of, so I've done a, probably over a thousand influencer deals. I represented HBO, Warner Media, um, AT&T, and I worked with all the different companies about like films and, and just general influencers. You know, the people who sit on Twitch and make like a million bucks by doing like three or four streams or the people who are at like music awards or, or movies or Gossip Girl. Like I did so many of those contracts for leading companies at Omnicom. And I said, okay, now that I'm in web three, first off, what are all the clauses and provisions that I've helped draft that I could bring to my clients here to give them the best value? But also let's think about this. Um, it wasn't until Andreessen Horowitz came out with it's not evil licensing and copyright. I was doing this for about six, seven months before them. And, and we actually spoke. The idea was I had a client come to me and said, I have a very important brand. It, like, it, it was a very high end luxury brand. And he said, I want to make NFTs, but I'm worried about my reputation. I'm worried about what if people are going to use this artwork and it's going to make me look bad because I have a, I have a good reputation in the traditional art world. And also I have a very big luxury brand that we're collaborating with. And I just can't have anyone tarnish a reputation. So I said, no problem. I created a morality clause within the terms of service. And I said, here are the community guidelines. Here's what it means to be in the community. And if you don't if you buy this NFT and you don't adhere to the community guidelines, we have the right to freeze your NFT. We have the right to take it back because you're not adhering to the community guidelines. We at least were able to give them a warning first and, and implement it. 
This is a little bit more common now, but not as common as you'd think. And these are like the type of ideas and thoughts that you have to go beyond just like the traditional, okay, we're releasing a PFP project, what happens? What if somebody, you know, God forbid, uses it to promote Hitler? Or like, I know Bored Apes supposedly is Nazi propaganda. What if someone overtly like, oh, this is only for Trump supporters or only for Biden supporters, or we're gonna use this for pornography. Um, some projects don't care, but like a Louis Vuitton might, uh, you know what I mean? And those are things that if you don't consult with the right lawyer, they're never going to put it in. One of the reasons why I became so big on terms of service as well is because one of the early projects I did, they basically just wanted to copy Board Apes. Board Apes was very successful. And in my view, Board Apes may have been a mistake because the way that the Board Apes terms of service were written, they weren't very good. The HTML wasn't great too, or there were the spaces were wrong. There were like semi like miswrites and, and they didn't explain what a wallet or the blockchain was correctly. This to me looked like a, a retired securities lawyer. And I know like since then that they actually copied it from another site. And I think that these are the type of things that even the most successful projects in the world just didn't have good terms and it bites them later. Yuga Labs gets sued all the time now who owns the catalog of Board Apes. And these are things that come up. These are things that they should be thinking about. And it's just so interesting to me that you as a user who are buying something are making an agreement with a company that really matters. Like, are you gonna give royalties away when you trade it? Are you allowed to trade it? Uh, There's so many questions legally and not that you have to think about as a founder. You make thousands of decisions within the first couple of months, no doubt, potentially within the first weeks if you're a good, efficient founder. You're gonna, you're gonna have to run a lot by legal. I wanna be that voice in the room. I want the seat at the table with your company to advise and say, I could telegram Charles, I could call him, I, Charles is approachable. I wear cool jackets in my view and, and hang out at parties. I'm, I'm seen on the scene. I'm very good friends with, you know, co-founder of Ethereum. I'm friends with uh, Dave Krugman, one of my clients who throws great community parties and, and upstate retreats. I'm friends with all these different people and clients because lawyers aren't always approachable. Sometimes they have a suit. They're sitting in this place. Every time I talk to a lawyer, I was always afraid they're charging me. I'm afraid I couldn't afford it, even if I had a big budget, because I just didn't know what the bill would be. I want people to feel a lot more comfortable with legal, especially in Web3, because you need to have a lawyer as part of the process. You need a low cost solution for someone not to feel afraid about asking questions, because at the end of the day, both of our goals is for your project to succeed. And my goal is always to make you like three times as much money as you pay me at the very least, just by structuring and giving you the right solutions of how to make your project a smashing hit. I mean, the approachability aspect is so important because I also had this idea that, you know, lawyers are not approachable. But I mean, having this person that you can, for example, whenever you want to send them an email, I mean, you're not going to be charged, obviously. But yeah. also, I don't kind of agree with this fact because I think even the founders should be thinking about, okay, how, how can I deliver value in the world and how can I get paid for it? I think that's kind of the simple equation. That's the same for a founder, for an engineer, for a lawyer. I mean, I don't think that it's right to make some professions evil. For example, we say that salespeople are evil because they want to sell something. Okay, everything needs to be sold somehow. So it's, it's really important to get this mindset that at the end of the day, we want to connect things together, solve a problem, and get paid for it, capture value for it as well. So, yeah. You're right. I think the main disconnect, I think, between lawyers and Web3 
is if you were to ask like even the most seasoned lawyer, um, so I could just go back very quick and explain how I got into Web3 to begin with, um, because it kind of ties into this, not even to jump the gun, but to explain that um, it was during the beginning of the pandemic when I was working at a top sports and entertainment company, I was representing the Olympics, the Mets, and we were litigating in court all the time. So I was working 15 hour days, I had no weekends, really stressed, but you know, rewarding work. And when the pandemic started, I was so bored at home, just, you know, you were kind of on lockdown that I decided to go to Tulum with some friends and I would work in Tulum. I'd go to the beach at night, but for the most part, I would sit on a rooftop and draft motions for summary judgment all day. This happened for like several months. And I realized I have to be back in my desk in New York. This is just a lot to, you know, maintain. So being back in my desk in New York, I still had the, the bug to travel or at least to meet new people. And ultimately, when COVID chilled out just a little bit, uh, people, I wanted to go to a shared workspace and, you know, like a WeWork or twice a week, I could just go somewhere where I could talk and meet other people and still get my work done. So I joined a place called Custom House, C-S-T-M-H-A-U-S, like spelled very cool. Um, and they were in meatpacking and they were just like, Hey, we're, we love like different tech founders and, and just you, you're a lawyer. I was just a traditional lawyer at that point, previously a founder, but just a lawyer. And they said, yeah, we'd love for you to join. There was like a dog, there were treats, uh, like food, there were events. And I made some really good friends to this day who I'm still with. And one day, um, one of my friends came to me, I was packing up to leave and he said, are you staying for NF Tuesdays? And this is like, you know, around 2020. And I said, NF Tuesdays, I know NFTs are important, but I don't know much about it. I've just read a couple articles and they were painting guys and girls and turning them into NFTs with like a DJ. And, and I was like, yeah, man, I'll stay for sure. I want to learn what happens. So I go to this party and, and I'm talking to people and I heard a panel of like the head of Christie's, like head of marketing. And she was talking about Beeple's sale of artwork. And uh, the person who bought Beeple's artwork is actually my neighbor in the building now which is cool. I have a good crypto crew here uh, in the Lower East Side, Manhattan, but they didn't know what they were doing. And they said, we don't know whether or not we should charge royalties or secondary sales or not. We don't know what the amount should be. We don't know if we should even put Christie's on chain to say that we own the NFT before we sell it to someone else, which was obvious to me. Of course, you wanted to say Christie's had it because you're buying it at auction at Christie's, but they didn't know anything. And they were just, they had like a 45 minute meeting about it. And they sold something for upwards of $50 million, right? And to me, that was inspiring and fascinating to hear about. But it was interesting because at that thing, I met uh, several friends who are with me. And one of them was connected with Katie Cassidy, who's a celebrity. She's like a B-list celebrity. And Katie, if you're listening, you're always an A-list celebrity, especially in my book. But the thing, she was in Gossip Girl and she was in some new recent hits. She sold NFT artwork. Uh, I believe upwards of 30 million, th sorry, $30,000. And she sold many of them since. She was one of the first celebrities to take photos of herself and just like sell the rights to it. But, but Katie Cassidy had told me that her experience, like she was in Beverly Hills, she makes millions a year. She's on the tablets. She's very well known, especially in the celebrity world. She had access to some great legal counsel and advice, but her lawyers told her, that NFTs are like pet rocks. They're kind of worthless. Like maybe you could trick someone into selling it, but there's no real value in it. And, and they wouldn't really help her like structure it. So she turned to somebody like me who was open-minded and was willing to kind of delve into this world and see intrinsically the value. 
she didn't think her the pictures of herself were worthless. She realized that there was a market and a need for it. And those are the type of people, especially that even though you could have a really good lawyers who have studied securities law their whole life, who are the experts who literally write the laws, they're probably going to retire soon. And they're also incentivized to say no to you, right? If you're a lawyer working at a firm, as I did, I've, I've built numerous hours. I've built 2,300 hours plus some years, which was very difficult to do um, because not all your billables count. You really have to put in the work and effort and um, make sure that like everything is captured to increase the value and also to to create the narrative of everything that you build. And I realized that if you're counseling people and they're paying you, like let's say uh, for instance, uh, somebody you know comes to me and says, hey Charles, I have an idea for a project and here's some money uh, for you to counsel me, right? Um, could I, for instance, somebody just said, could I write off taxes? Um, I bought land, physical and digital. Could I write off any taxes for the digital aspect and even the physical? I could literally do research for like five hours or so. I could put one of my associates on it, come back to him and say, while it may be possible, it's unlikely for you to prevail. Therefore, we advise that you don't do it. And if the client doesn't do something, there's no risk on us. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no issue of professional liability insurance. Like as a lawyer, your goal is to just bill as many hours as you can and often tell your clients no. Because by telling the clients yes, you're risking your own reputation, your own kind of career, your own liability. Because if the client ends up not being happy, they could sue you. But if you told the client not to do it, the client is never really going to come back and see you and say, hey, another lawyer said I could do it. So I'm suing you because I could have done it the whole time. Not true. There are always two sides to a story and a lawyer could always tell you no. And I think that when I was a startup founder, I was told no all the time. You're told no as it is. You know, when you're trying to raise money, I, I pitched uh, 50 VCs and angels. I was told no all the time. And, and that's just a part of life. But do you want your lawyer to tell you no too? Do you want people on your team to always tell you no? That's fucking difficult and hard to do. So I'm not going to tell you yes all the time. It's not like, hey, Charles, could I like kill people, like sell an NFT and kill people who, who get it or something like that, like something or commit a crime. No, you can't commit a crime, but I could tell you maybe you can't do commit a crime. However, in the metaverse, you could commit a crime, right? You could kill someone in the metaverse and that isn't really killing someone. You have freedom of thought and expression. And, and that's something like as an alternative, there are so many ways to think about navigating the law, especially in a space that hasn't really been fully developed. And there, it's a little scary sometimes too. I've had projects that have helped make over $15 million. And when I hit that threshold, I'm very wary about US operations because I've noticed that the way that the OFAC um, regime, that CFTC, SEC, FTC, even you name it, they've all been suing, even if the project in my view is doing things correctly, just because they can and there's a lot of money at stake. The regulatory bodies here are incentivized to overreach their power and say, well, there's no there's no real law yet or clear cut, but this looks like insider trading. This looks like fraud, like with the OpenSea case about, you know, one of the engineers knew about what would be on the page. So like made some money on it. And the Southern District of New York, the FBI was involved and the attorney general basically said, there's nothing new under the sun. This looks like wire fraud to us. So we're going to see you. And and there's no real, real way around that. But um, also, as an entrepreneur and a lawyer, you're in a very, very um, unique position 
I'm creating a platform where people like you could go and, you know, like a clerky or like a YC um, setup where you could potentially go and buy a contract from me. And anytime the law changes, I'll be able to update it to you for free, or you'll pay like a monthly in order to stay up to date so we could update all your agreements and information. I think that's a very important aspect of Web3 because there are things that change all the time. I'm also um, the founder of two spinoff companies because counseling a lot of companies made me realize the needs within the Web3 space. So for instance, if you're familiar with um, recently, um, you know, the FTX scandal had Tom Brady involved. It had even like Larry David. It had, um, I believe, Paul Pierce sued for 1.4 million um, because people were promoting Emacs. If you recall, like Kim Kardashian said, hey, guys, buy Ethereum Max. And it turned out to be a scam. And they got sued for over a million dollars from the SEC. So I created a company, CryptoDisclose.com. Uh, right now, we're still integrating through our clients, but we're ultimately going to open it to the public where if you're promoting crypto in any way, you have to adhere to certain disclosure requirements. You have to say how much you got paid to do it. You have to say like who you got paid from and what you're doing. There are certain disclaimers that you need. Very, very easy to do. But most lawyers aren't helping their clients. You know what I mean? Like if somebody goes to Tom Brady and says, hey, promote this product. If you typically promote a product on Instagram or TikTok, you could just write hashtag ad, hashtag pay partnership or, or, or check some sort of like, like mark on the thing and you're good. But now with the SEC stepping in and saying, if there's something to do with crypto, you have to like provide additional disclosures. Not hard to do. You're just not used to it. And most lawyers aren't going to tell you to. And then we're going to sue you for millions of dollars because you don't know what you're going to you're doing and settle. How annoying is it that if you were one single sentence when you were disclosing your crypto, you wouldn't have to pay a million dollars. And those are the type of products that I'm spinning out and helping my clients with because you should be protected. And if anything's wrong, it's on me. I have professional liability insurance. I have insurance on the product and you're not going to have to worry about like what you're going to have to pay out. Like all of your legal worries are, are done. Um, a lot of people right now, even clients I have, it's very scary and difficult because they're creating their own token and they're going out there on AMAs on Reddit. They're going out on Twitter spaces. They're going out there at Ethereum Denver right now. And they're telling people, buy my token, right? Isn't that similar to saying buy Ethereum Max? You really have to disclaim and disclose certain things. And that's what crypto disclose this product comes in. And another one, I'm putting wills on the blockchain as well and, and dealing with trusts on that end. There are just so many opportunities in Web3 from the legal vantage point that people don't even think about or realize. And that's why I'm appreciative of you having me on the podcast. I do get a lot of clients through word of mouth, but I'm always appreciative of sticking to the space and bringing more people in because for me, the more clients that I counsel, the better. I want everyone to move in lockstep. I want people to have similar structures, similar provisions, so we could get to the next level. I don't want founders to worry or stay up at night what happens legally if one of my co-founders is threatening to sue me? What happens if one of the partners wasn't paying me? How do I get the money or, or how do I even collaborate with people? Or what do I do for the next step? Because a company just raised $5 million to create digital fashion. And now they're like, well, it looks like no one really gives a shit right now about like, about the, the digital, the digital aspects of it. What do we do? So I had a meeting with them yesterday and we talked about different options of, different projects I've worked with that were successful and, and what the use cases might be. And I think that it's just like a really rewarding opportunity. 
sure I get paid and sure I get paid pretty well, especially for certain projects. But the reason I am is because I put value first. If I can't help you, I'll tell you that, or I'll tell you who else to speak with. Because in my view, we're all helping each other. We're all biddling, as they say. And I think that that's, that's the real process. Like if we think about the blockchain and we take a step back, it's really just a boring ledger that's immutable that you can't fuck with. I say that it's an Excel spreadsheet you can't fuck with. It was a paper in MIT around 1993, um, just the theory of the blockchain of using different computers to hold. And now we have all this hype and we have all this stuff, which is great. And new artists are emerging, new currencies and, and new DAOs and ways to change the world. But I also see like taking it to basics. Okay, what is this? What is the blockchain really? And what are we doing with it? Like we're for now on, we're able to own something on the internet, like like digitally own any asset. We don't need a government to tell us this is money. We don't need a Google or a Twitter to say this is your tweet. Like theoretically, we could own anything on the internet. Like this is a big deal, and we're not really going to realize what it is until the next three to five years to 10 years at least, especially integrating different mainframes and systems and all the boring shit for the CB, CBDC banks and all the things going on. Like we're going to learn a lot more about what this really means. But I think like the people who are in Web3 are exposed to such a new tech that, um, you know, when, when I was still learning about blockchain and Web3 and I went to that party at uh, painting the guys and girls, the after party was at this penthouse where they said, hey, do you want to go to this penthouse after? Like we're all hanging out. It's called Alpha House in New York. And I met people who were there when the Internet first started. I met founders who did the diapers.com, who did pets.com, and they made their millions of dollars when the Internet first started. And they fucked off to some island somewhere and they retired. And, and four or five of them were there. I was getting drinks with them. And it was very cool to see these like, OG people who were like there for the dot-com bust and, and pre-dot-com when they, they made all this money. And I said, you know, why are you guys here? Like, are you networking for Web3? Like, what brings you here? Don't you have like the money that you need? Like, like why, are you, why are you working in this new field? And unanimously, every single person there said, Web3 is going to be bigger than the internet. Bigger than the internet, right? And I said, that can't be. Maybe it'll be just as big as the internet, but the internet fucking changed everything. And anyone I've spoken with who really was there when the internet first started, all agree that this is going to be bigger than the internet, right? Because now like forms of government could change, forms of money, forms of ownership. There's so much there. And I know it sounds like hype, but every single person there said that. So I told myself, even if this is a half of what the internet is, or even if it's just as big as the internet, I'm willing to stake my career at a phenomenal job, phenomenal pedigree. But I'm like, if any lawyer ever quit their job and said, I'm just going to work in the Internet when the Internet first started, you wouldn't think they're dumb or crazy now. You'd say, wow, you're probably rich, well connected and probably made a true impact in the world. So I said, let me just delve into Web3 exclusively, because if this is anything like the Internet, I could really make an impact here. I could really help founders. I could really change the world by taking legal out of the way by creating shared workspaces, collaborative environments and and counsel all these people. So as scary as it is, as new field as it is, and as much money as I was getting generally, I was able to create a pretty good path and career and, and scale slam legal to even have associates and, and different staff working under me and with me 
just because I knew and, and I believe that even though there are so many scams out there like FTX, the blockchain is real and the blockchain is here to stay. And if you as a founder, you as a lawyer, you as anyone involved, stop worrying about what the scams are in the pump and dumps. Remember, we're working on the new Internet and remember that there's still a solution there. And I think that bringing back and, and really getting to basics and remembering that fact has helped you get through the darkest times of the bear market and helped you realize that even though there's so much fluctuation and noise out there, you're still doing something unique and different and new because up until this point in the history of the world, we were never able to own something digitally without requiring a third party. Even though we still give away our keys oftentimes, still the theoretics of it is that we're able to go out and, and have something like a birth certificate or a will or um, an NFT or a currency and, and we could own it generally. We could give our users something that our users can't really fake. Even a passport you could technically fake or, or dollars you could fake. Like, why is it that when you lose your passport, you have to go to this like embassy or, or whatever, you have to wait a while or it, it's like all these things are going to be solved in the next you know several years. Um, people can lie about their education. People can lie about their work experience. And you don't really know. You just have an interview or you people give their friends like, you know, give me a reference. And someone could give their friend as a reference and say, oh, yeah. I worked, I worked with uh, so-and-so at Google. He did a great job. Uh, we're no longer there. Like, why don't you have something on chain that says you worked at Google that Google certifies? Like, we don't have that stuff. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's all going to change. I mean, when you kind of think about it in this way, all of these things become obvious. Like, yeah, of course you want to have that. Or even when I kind of think about it, why I'm here in the blockchain space, because I mean, it's not for the scams or uh, short-term things, because... I feel really comfortable right now being in a bear market because, you know, things are moving and I'm having great conversations with people. I'm learning. I'm, I'm building something. It's, it's all the possibilities you mentioned just makes me so excited. For example, one aspect I know is going to have a big impact, not only on the developed country, but the one emerging countries, even the poor countries in the world. And it's like the success of a country is dependent on how much opportunity can it create for people? You know, for example, give them access to loans, you know, give them access to be able to raise funds, you know, do all these things. And just blockchain makes all of these simpler and a whole lot of other things. You know, you mentioned like certificates, you know, games, NFTs, yeah. art, everything basically. So I think that's why we're here. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I would just add too that one of the biggest things about being in Web3 you have to go to IRL events. You have to meet people in person. You could be on as many Twitter spaces as you want, which is great. And it's a great echo chamber in a way where everyone's like in a certain way and people are like, oh, we're on crypto Twitter, GM, GM, and things are going great. When you go in person and, and I make more of an effort these days, especially because you get reaffirmed. You remember why you're there. It's so easy to forget why you're in web three it's so easy to say well ai is doing better now which first off you can marry a lot of ai concepts into web three which i think is a very important point but there are so many other careers and fields that you're like why am i even doing web three what's the point and then you meet people or speak with people and you just feel passionate again you feel even podcasts which is why i was excited to be on this one i speak on podcasts and every time i do it's almost like a job interview where you know even when you're at your job you interview at someone else with another firm um, or another company and you start explaining why you were there in the first place, why you chose that job and what you're doing. When you wake up in the morning, you don't always think about 
I chose the blockchain and here's why. Like you're thinking about a certain problem that you have or a code set or, or how you're going to integrate like a, a new um, quarter. Like what are, you, what are you always doing or how you're unveiling the product? But then when you get a step back and you speak with people like conversations like these, you say, wow, I'm actually changing the world, even in a, in, even in a small way. Even if someone's doing something similar, no one's doing exactly what I'm doing just yet. And I have the balls to be out there and actually hang in there, even during a bear market and build and be somewhere. And it was Shira Lazar who had said, I was at um, Art Basel and Art Week in Miami, who said, you deserve everything that comes to you by mere fact of being in the space. And that really resonated with me because oftentimes you get really good opportunities when you're in the space that come out of nowhere. Um, you may be offered to go, I was offered to go on yacht parties um, just by mere fact. I produced a documentary of Women in Web3 where I interviewed 25 women, many were my clients, about what their experiences were like in Web3. I'm not a producer, but because I was in the space and because I counsel clients, I was approached. And I, I get to work with Snoop Dogg, I get to work with Robinhood and, and all these companies just because I'm here. And I think you as well, it's just like, by being here, you deserve everything that comes to you because we are the innovators. Um, it was actually Grimes who said when she was with uh, Elon Musk, that said people often um, are haters and, and skeptics when they say, why are you so optimistic about the future? You know, things in the world aren't going well with emissions and 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 we're we're all mistreating each other. We're all self-interested. How could you be you know optimistic about the future? And and Grimes had said in an interview, we are we are the future. We're writing the future right now. And if we're not optimistic about the future, the future will not be optimistic. The truth is, we have to be because we're the ones propelling the space forward. And we forget it. It seems as though there are so many people doing Web three, but there really aren't. When you go to the events and you realize that you know a lot more than most people. And not only that, that you're actually really committed to it. Not as many people are committed to it as you might think, especially those with like families and, and other jobs. And those are great. And, and I plan to have one as well. But I realized like really immersing yourself in the space and really becoming an expert is, is something that you have the power to make changes. You have the power to be creative right now and, and really make an impact. And that's why Slam Legal and, and me as legal counsel really want to come in and help propel founders forward. We really want to make a difference and, and really shift you into the new paradigm, really make you realize that you're doing something great. Yeah, the laws are a little bit dicey and iffy right now, but we know exactly what to do to put you in the best position to succeed. And, and that's the mission that I'm looking to accomplish with Sun Legal and, and speaking with you and, and all the other founders on the, on the podcast and, and throughout the world, um, just to really make an impact and and realize that we are doing something innovative and new here and the law shouldn't hinder you the law should really help you i mean i feel more motivated right now compared to before starting this podcast so i think i can relate so much to just talk to people just participate just join you know and uh, opportunities will come to you if you're with the right group of people in the right uh, kind of context place but i can totally relate to the fact that yeah uh, when things are behind Twitter and all those things, it doesn't feel as real. So especially right now with the COVID restrictions going away, for example, right now I couldn't participate in East Denver, but I'm definitely going to go to Paris. Like as, as much as I can, I want to also be able to talk to people, but it doesn't have to be conferences. I mean, every day I'm talking to other founders, builders in the podcast and the company that we're building. So, I mean, there's just opportunities all around us and 
as you mentioned, yeah. like the legal aspect is just an aspect of it. It's important to think about it. There obviously, I think again, like the most important reason that I really love to have you on the podcast was not only to talk about, you know, hey, this is what you should do in the beginning, or it's about, you know, having a full context about what are the important things and how you should think about them. And the legal aspect is just an aspect of it. So yeah. Absolutely. And and I think that that's right. Like even being with people, so I'm working on creating a shared workspace to give access to some of my clients and other people who are in Web3 to work together to just party and chill, maybe create a pillow pit where people could have conversations, like high level conversations with wellness cafes. I think getting in the right frame and right mindset are important. But I think we need to like as builders, we have to collaborate and not compete. And we have to really internalize this because you going out there and speaking with other people, you're a very open minded, collaborative person, which is great. And I think a lot of the Web3 people are because we're early adopters to things. That's typically how it works. But there are so many things that we could solve and so many problems that we could do by working together. And back in the day, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and all the top um, you know, since the industrial revolution, all the top wealthy families were very competitive. Like the Rockefellers would burn down other people's railroads or antitrust became an issue. And that made sense because we are, live in a capitalistic society and um, one company could beat out another. But I think we're entering a new age and a new era with the internet that we have to work together. And the person who collaborates the most is going to be the new Rockefeller and the new Vanderbilt in the next 20 years. And the, per, the, the connector is, is the next stage of the archetype of, of what is successful. And fortunately, that could move the world forward, uh, depending on the power and, and how they utilize it. But I think, yeah, being a part of the system, and, and that's why community is such an overused, but such, such an important term in Web3. If Web3 is going to succeed, we need community. That's, that's just a fact. We've got to work together. We've got to motivate each other. Artists need recognition. Founders need recognition. Uh, even lawyers need recognition sometimes, but for the most part, I think, um, yeah, man, grateful, grateful to be on it, even though it was like a little early in the morning, always motivated to help share the mission and idea that, uh, we're doing something great and, and don't worry about the legal, but leave that to us because, uh, you have a lot of other things to worry about and a lot of ways to, to make your project successful. This has been great, Charles. Thank you so much for sharing all the examples, motivation, everything. I'm going to be putting all the info about your uh, legal practice, all the projects that were involved with in the description. So make sure to check them out. Just reach out to Charles. He's really approachable. Just send him a message in Twitter, send him an email. And yeah, I think that's how we grow. So let's just keep doing that. Thank you so much, Charles. This has been great. See you guys in the next one. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening.